Hey there, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. And, oh, hey, man, Jonathan Foster uh, in this episode, and we talk about reconstruction and deconstruction, and we talk about penal substitution, atonement theory, and theology of consent, and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Also grief. So we talk about grief, too. I feel like I've been doing several episodes on deconstruction, and I've been doing this realizing how much grief is involved in in deconstructing your faith, and like I think you have to process the grief before you can start reconstructing or putting a shape to what you believe. So we talked a little bit about how do you start reshaping your faith. There's a, there's a ton in this episode. It's really, really good. And I know I say that a lot, but uh, I just really appreciated um, chatting with him. And I, I hope maybe he'll come back on the podcast again and we'll talk more about uh, the things that God can't do. So We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? All right, cool. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm loving I am loving your your podcast and the episodes and uh and I like I went back to the beginning and started listening to oh, wow. your first few episodes. So, which I know I'll, I know podcasts get better as the more you record, the more you do it, and stuff like that. But you still have a lot of really good content in there. Uh, so I'm I'm slowly getting caught up, and, and now I'm starting to listen to some of the people you've interviewed on your podcast. And that's yeah. nice. Yeah, it's funny because um, there has been quite a lot of. I mean, that was probably five years ago, and that was when I was first going through you know, getting asked to leave the denomination over the sexuality stuff. And, and that's really kind of when I decided to do it. It's like, well, this should, this is a good spot to kind of chronicle what's happening. And then since then it was like, well, I don't know why I would stop. Let's just keep going. And yeah, quite the evolution, quite the journey. So very interesting. It it has been. Um, (laughs) And I I do, there's a couple of episodes I listened to that I'm going to talk to you about, but um, I want to dig into your book because you just, you're, you just released a new book, right? right. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it just, I, I, I haven't read it, obviously, because it just released. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, well, um, were you part of the crowdfunder? No, no, but a friend of mine was, yeah. Okay, I couldn't remember, but um, so yeah, I don't know when this um, episode will drop, but the the book that we, we released it uh, with a crowdfunder and then now it'll be out on the Amazons and all that stuff on December 5. But yeah, you can pre-order it before December 5. And then after that, obviously just get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So just in time for Christmas, people, mm-hmm. uh, which would be good, right? Because it's all about grief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants a book about grief on Christmas. <laughs> well, you know, some of us who are I think when you're grieving uh, that, especially that first Christmas, right? It's, that's pretty yeah. tough. Yeah. 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 It Definitely. Is. Well, I hope so. Right. Exactly. Holiday times um, are very difficult 
for people grieving loved ones. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I say that like we're as of this recording, it's mid November and I don't even really, it's like sad, but it's the reality. I, I personally don't even really look forward to the holidays that much because life is so much different. Plus our daughter died on new year's day, which only oh, exacerbates the holiday season even more. So yeah, it's a, it's a hard time. And I know you know that as a pastor for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe, maybe it will be a good time to release a book about it. Yeah. Well, this is my, this is my first Christmas not being a pastor in 20 years. So mm, yeah. <laughs> so you're grieving of, that. Yeah. So there's a lot of grief there. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I'm not writing a, a Christmas message. Am I? Well, Okay. Mm. Um, now your daughter passing is, is that what precipitated your deconstruction? Like, yeah, where that, did was that... The, that was the main catalyst. I was kind of already, uh, you know, in retrospect, I can tell I was on that journey. I was, I was trying to figure out how to come up with healthier, uh, more expansive answers to some of these, you know, more difficult questions. But I, I don't know that I would have done what I've done and, and been on the journey that I had had not had that not happened. It was like high octane fuel to the whole mm. launching into completely different stratospheres. And I didn't plan, like, you know, it was never on my radar. Even to be called a theologian now is just, uh, it's slightly embarrassing and kind of funny to me. I just, I just never anticipated that happening. And if you would ask my partner, I mean, she'd say the same thing, like, you know, we wouldn't have guessed. But, um, but yeah, when something that intense happens, at least for me, when it happened, it was just like this massive invitation to basically reconsider or consider everything. And then as I was considering it, realizing I can reconsider it and that there's a lot, it's really honorable. It's a really honorable human work to reconsider and to rethink and to reapproach and to um, embrace the change. So yeah, that was the main thing that that got me going in a different direction. Yeah, I I think that this this idea that you and you actually make a, a comment about this in uh, in your book, um, the Reconstructionist. This idea that we have this magical transactional prayer, right? Um, and, and of course, in my tradition, usually at a or oftentimes at an, an altar, right? Of repentance. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> and then you just accept everything as face value of what you're told. This is what you should believe, and this is how you believe it, and this is how it this is how it unfolds in everybody's life. And then there comes a point where you're like, okay, but the experience that I'm having doesn't line up with all of the things that you're saying. And that the, the read, not just the reasonable thing to do, but like you said, the honorable, I think the honorable thing to do, if we truly are worship God is to step back and say, well, uh, maybe we need to look at this again. Yeah, I I totally agree. Like uh, for, unfortunately in our culture and it's probably always been true but it's certainly never been more true than it is now the idea that a pastor you know would would want to have intellectual honesty to the degree that he or she would you know dive deeper into this and come to new ideas and new conclusions uh 
you know that that all of that would freak people out to the degree that it does is is so incredibly unfortunate that's probably the best thing you can say you know the worst thing you say is it's probably evil um, because it forces people to stay within these prefabricated categories that just aren't in alignment with reality the nature of reality is telling us that everything is in relationship and because of that there's a there's a measure of flux and change with everything that is the reality there's nothing we can do about that and it's okay it's good you know for those of us who are who believe in god we we think oh this all flows from god um so i can't remember what i started to say other than um yeah it's honorable work and so i commend you for trying to do the work too yeah it's been it's been quite a journey i mean and, and i think you know my years ago and i've got a little different story because i i came to faith as an adult mm -hmm. so so my faith background is catholic okay. like the whole uh protestant especially in more specifically evangelical way of doing faith um is is i guess relatively new in my lifespan right if you think about if i think about it in my lifespan so whereas people who grew up you know from early childhood being taught this um there's so much that's just natural that they don't even realize is, is embedded in them so i feel like <clears throat> i started deconstructing in a sense you know before i planted my church which why i planted the church right like as i started seeing what was happening i'm like this this is not safe like this is not a safe place for people to really ask deeper questions and dig mm -hmm. into what they believe and why they believe it and and that there should be like that's part of our role right as, as pastors and shepherds part of our role should be to invite <clears throat> to invite people to yeah. ask the questions and to dig deeper like like ones who are actually uh like instigating them thinking right right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah for sure i agree um in your uh in your in your book um reconstruction reconstructing um there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I, I want to talk about your three points, right? Which you have as people is greater than text and mercy is greater than sacrifice and love is greater than fear. But you also make a point, I think it's page 40, and you're talking about this idea of to die or Jesus, you know, Jesus' death being required in order for us to be forgiven. And because I want to tie that into something you talked about early on in your podcast, which I know is like five years ago. Yeah, but I'm good. I'm guessing like this is still part of your theology and it's something that like I wrestle with and I think a lot of my listeners do this idea of of penal substitution and that it really it really causes a lot of trauma in our understanding of God and um and I think that that is something that's really causing a lot of us to deconstruct will you so will you talk a little bit like like just explain penal substitution for the listeners, but then talk about like, what is another way for us to think about the cross instead of penal substitution? I, I just, I like the way you kind of dug that out. 
Well, it's a really, really good question and a really big question. And for me personally, my when my views changed around atonement and the crucifixion and what was happening with all of that, that was the watershed theological moment of my life. Everything else really has flowed from that. Uh, it's like the continental divide, you know, a raindrop falls one inch to the west, it's going to the Pacific, and one inch to the east, it's going to, you know, the Atlantic. And uh, that is what this atonement stuff is for me. So yeah, penal substitutionary atonement theory is the is the idea that really um, has caught on with Christianity in the West in the last couple hundred years, particularly. There's always been an element, um, as I understand it, throughout the history of Christianity, but it's really picked up speed in the last few generations for a variety of different reasons, I suppose, that we could get into. But it's interesting because the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, which is a huge part of Christianity, I never even, I mean, I suppose I'd probably heard of Eastern Orthodox at some point in my life, but really up until about 10 years ago, I'd never even knew that it existed and it's a huge element of christianity so that piece of it of the family has never bought into penal substitutionary atonement it's a it's a different approach and thankfully in the west there's a growing number of thinking people who are critically engaging with this and who are helping us see that if you have a god who needs bloodshed in order to forgive, that it's highly problematic, to, to say the least, for for lots lots of different reasons. But um, I suppose the biggest is because well, then that God, <clears throat> that God um, really isn't. It isn't a deity that can just decide to love and to give grace and to forgive in and of himself or herself. It's, it's a deity that needs something in order to be basically, I don't mean to be this flippant, but that's really what it boils down to, basically to get into the mood in order to forgive. I mean, some transactional thing has to happen, which, um, again, is, is, is not healthy, because then you have people who live that out in their own life, because we always, you know, our anthropology is always connected to our theology and vice versa. There's no other way around that. And so if you have a God, you know, who's kind of at the top demanding sacrifice, you will always build these religious systems that fit that mold. We superimpose that thing over what we do. And then we have people in these systems who then sooner or later get to demand that others sacrifice something, you know, they got to change something in order to gain um, the church's acceptance, which then gets conflated with God's acceptance and it's really gross when you start to peel it all away, and it's super unhealthy. So it was a it was a game changer for me to realize. I mean, like I knew some of these verses, I just had never thought of it in this way. But to realize that, oh no, God has always been love. God has always, I should say, caveat here. I don't know any of this for sure. I'm just saying by faith. I think that God has always been love. Um someone who didn't grow up with a Christian tradition who might be listening might be saying, well, why would you say that? I mean, that's just, I'm importing 
some of that stuff into it. And so by faith, I think that God has always been love. And if that's true, the, the old, I mean, the old Testament scriptures speak to that over and over again. God's always been forgiving. God's always been gracious. And he, even when Jesus showed up, Jesus was forgiving before he was crucified. It's not as if Jesus in those instances where he forgave people in some of those gospel stories, he paused afterwards and said, Hey, hold on a second. That thing I did where I just forgave you really, it, it's not really going to take effect until I get, you know, brutally tortured and murdered here in a few days or a few months, whatever the case might be. So Jesus was practicing this himself. And I, I remember one day just thinking, Oh yeah. I mean, it's like with me and my kids. I mean, if I want to forgive, I, I just forgive. I don't need to beat one of them in order to forgive any of the others. In fact, not only do I not need to do that, that's the last thing in the world I would want to do. And so if that's true with me, how much more so with our heavenly parent? So yeah, penal substitutionary atonement puts us in a really tough spot of, of thinking that Jesus was substituted for us, that God really doesn't Okay, and I'll just say some some of it's kind of tricky because there is some substitution part of it that is kind of interesting and kind of um, there's veracity there. There's some truth there, and so we could work through some of that. But basically, penal substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus had to be a substitute for us because God was so angry at us over our sin that God really couldn't even look at us. In fact, that's what a lot of American Christianity has preached and taught that if God were to look at us without Jesus, that he would just, I don't know what, uh, self-implode, explode in anger. But fortunately, God sees Jesus when he looks at us. And so because of that, his love for us, because Jesus died for us, and it's just, uh, it's replete with a lot of dysfunctional, unhealthy stuff. And it puts God in the position of just being... Um, frankly, kind of sadistic. And I mean, if any of us acted that way to our kids, I mean, the, the only responsible thing to do would be to call child protection services on other people. Um, but that's the kind of idea we've had with God. So I'm rambling a bit, but is that starting to get at what you're- No, you're not rambling. I think that's great. And and I remember you saying that in your book about, um, you know, Jesus didn't say, didn't say okay, wait, you you know, you're, you're like sort of forgiven. It's just right. like, I'm just giving you a promissory note, you know? Right. Uh, right. And it, it made me think of when, when Jesus heals uh, the, the four friends bring, you know, the person to Jesus and Jesus says, uh, you know, your, your, your sins are forgiven, pick up your man walk. And of course the Pharisees are like, nobody can forgive sin except for God. And it, I guess it never really dawned on me that part of their um, the part of the thing that uh, upset them so much was that there was no bloodshed. He did. He just said like, there was no animal sacrifice. There was nothing happened. He just said, Oh, right. you're forgiven. And right. so uh, like that messes with a whole lot of the system, right? When you didn't even need to, you didn't even need to um, sacrifice an animal and you didn't need to come to the temple. You didn't need to um, whatever, pay this, price and you're just going around and forgiving people willy-nilly you know like I totally like I yeah that really it hit me when you said that I'm like oh yeah I guess so um yeah because it I, subverts the entire mechanism that, that has been built upon 
exactly upon sacrifice and that mechanism is still in play today um, in all kinds of different ways so i don't know if i use the phrase in that book or if i started using it in later writing but i often think of the phrase the myth of redemptive sacrifice which is just a play off of walter wink who called it the myth of redemptive violence and i tend to switch the violence out for sacrifice because i think it makes a more specific point but the myth of redemptive sacrifice tells us that one must sacrifice. One has to. Uh, there is no other way around it. And it's not even your choice. And then God demands sacrifice. We live by it all the time. I mean, capitalism lives by the myth of redemptive sacrifice. It tells us over and over that if we sacrifice that sooner or later, you know, good things will happen to us. Meanwhile, it, it pays no attention to the people on the underside of capitalism. The people who don't have capital um you know i think about this all the time with athletics um just you watch games and if you pay attention to what the commentators they'll they'll often talk about the people who have sacrificed the most and who are always there and and it's this built-in thing into our society where like you know if you just give your life to this thing and it's the thing we glorify it we honor it and by the way i'm not suggesting that working hard is necessarily wrong, um, but it's it's what is what I think is wrong is to suggest that you have to give up everything in order to gain uh, God's love or God's goodness or for anything good to happen to you. It it rules out randomness and you know the possibility of good things happening to you by chance, which I think is true, and it also rules out grace because if you have to work to get everything um then <laughs> there's no reason for grace so yeah the myth of redemptive sacrifice is something i think the religious leaders were operating by and it's something uh, we all tend to if we're not careful we still operate by oh definitely um i think it's it's the number one uh, you know i think it's the number one um I want to say vice, but that's not the word I want. But I think it's the it's what we use. Kind of a default like problem, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Like uh, pastors, and you, you have a call in your life, and so you sacrifice everything. You sacrifice. You sacrifice yeah. your family yeah. for the call. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that's healthy. Yeah, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's healthy. Uh, and we've taken, you know, verses, that, you know, where Jesus has said, um, you know, you leave your mother and your father and, and we've right. twisted it to, right. yeah, to justify abuse and selfishness, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I think that it's really complicated because, um, well, it's complicated in part because again, I think there is a good kind of a sacrifice. We all know there's an altruistic way to live where you voluntarily give yourself away. That's the voluntary piece. And my dissertation was called theology of consent and consent has become the central thing in my life. Um, I think God can, is in consensual relationship with all of creation and that the invitation is for us to be in consensual relationship with God and all creation at the same time. Um, I don't really separate those on my thinking anymore. I used to think of God as here and us here, but now I, I see it way more entangled and enmeshed. So 
it's complicated because there is there is good sacrifice, but for me, it's about um, you having the opportunity, the agency to voluntarily choose to step into the thing and not having that imposed upon you by a religious system that says you must do this or by a God who says you must do this. I don't think in, I think there's a way to say, you don't actually have to do anything. Like God is with you no matter what. I know that freaks some people out, but, but rather that God is inviting you. God is that energy that's asking, wants to co-partner with you to make things better, but um, God's not going to control or coerce you because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be love. So yeah, it's, it starts to get tricky. So is it, so theology of consent, which I like, I really like that term when you think of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement yeah. and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so is when you think of what else, how else can we view the cross? Yeah. Then as an alternative form of atonement? <clears throat> so, um, yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I don't even think, I don't even use the word atonement anymore. It's just got so, so much economic and legal baggage attached to it. For me personally, I don't really use it. Um, it. It is a biblical word, so it's kind of hard not to sometimes. But when I use it, I just think of at one meant. That's atonement. And it's the whole, we might be able to see um, the whole move that Jesus makes throughout his entire ministry and his whole life, right up into the crucifixion as a move of at one minute uh, with people. Uh, we also might, might be able to see it, uh, that crucifixion thing as God being at one with Jesus, because as you know, there's a great portion of theology, again, especially in the West, that wants to say that God turned his back uh, when when Jesus was, was crucified. And I, I don't, think that that's what happened i don't even think i don't even think that is a uh again nature of reality saying suggesting all things are relational I, there is no space in the entire cosmos where god has like removed himself and left it wouldn't even make sense so um there are some tricky things to work through like when jesus says my god my god why have you forsaken me but i don't think it means that god actually has forsaken us and i actually don't think love can i I am a big believer in, in probably Tom Ord, open relational theology, that God God can't do certain things. It's because of his love. Love can't forsake. I could never forsake my kids. I mean, there are some things they could do that would, you know, be really hurtful and change the relationship, but I, it wouldn't even be possible for me to forsake them. So I see atonement as at one moment, this, this move of Jesus being at one with us, with God being at one with Jesus, and also us being at one with the people who killed Jesus. So it doesn't allow me to scapegoat the Jewish leaders of the day or, or the Roman soldiers of the day. I see the patterns that they were all involved in being played out in the culture that I live in and the very things that I've done. So at one minute helps me. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing is even longer than that and what helped me the most to unwind penal substitutionary atonement theory was the work that Rene Girard um, has done with his mimetic theory 
and his whole scapegoating mechanism. And we can talk about that, but that might take us down a path for a few minutes. So I just That's want to okay. check in with you first <laughs> we, before we do that. Go down that path. Uh, I don't yeah. have any problem with it. Uh, I, yeah. I did want I, only one comment I want to talk about with you that I there's things God can't do. It made yeah. me think of the book um, when bad things happen to good people. I can't think of the author's name, but he's Jewish. And, right, right. And he says in his book, he goes, God cannot be both, he cannot be all loving and all powerful. One of them has to overshadow the other. And so I think like I, I read that book five years ago when my father-in-law died. And um, I remember that book, when you when you make some of the things that you I was reading in the reconstructionist and then the idea of you know god can't do certain things um made me you know kind of reach back to that and think okay um so yeah what does that look like um okay so let's go but let's let's go down that road with uh, how do you say his name again i want to say it right renee gerard renee gerard yeah. yeah let's talk about his stuff uh i'm i'm game i'm up for it <laughs> Well, you also just introduced this whole idea of God can't, which is a huge, <laughs> huge uh, idea too. And I don't know if some of your listeners are familiar with open and relational theology. So I'll just quick, I'll try it as quickly as I possibly can say that, yeah, I'm an, I'm an advocate for saying that there are certain things that God cannot do. And it's biblical, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, God can't lie. Uh, we know God's a spirit, so God can't like, you know, physically move something. I say we know this is what the Bible teaches. So by faith, I think that, um, you know, God, you know, there are certain like silly things you could say, like God can't make a bachelor married, uh, can't make, you know, a triangle, a square, just silly stuff like that. So we already know that there are some built-in limitations. And then when you just take this a step further and say that God is love, love itself requires that there be certain things you can't do because if you control then it's not love so it sets us up for this really interesting idea of who the divine might be and um i'm endless endlessly playing with that idea and thinking through how that all could play out and consent has helped me anyhow yeah that's for a whole other thing but i uh i definitely encourage people to to think along those lines, but okay, let's talk Rene Girard. Um, so he has a thing called mimetic theory, and it's not it's not linear. It's a, it's a nonlinear thing, and it has to do with psychological desires. And so it can't. It's not what we would call falsifiable necessarily any more than a lot of psychological ideas are. Um, so that's frustrating for some people because you can't put it in a laboratory and, and prove it. But um, after considerable thought and thinking through it and reflecting upon it, a lot of people have, you know, seen the, how, how important it can be and it might be in our lives. So, like I said, it's not linear, but sometimes I lay it out in a, as linear a way as I possibly can in order to try to help communicate it. Um, and it has to do with it's basically what I say, it's a five-fold movement that plays out against two things. The two things it plays out against are everything's in relationship. 
so we never really entirely know where like one person ends and the other person begins. Um, so that's relationship. And then the second thing that it plays out against is this idea that what I think is true of all humans is like a common denominator is this idea that we're constantly wrestling with our own insecurities, our own maybe fallen shortness in a religious language. Philosophically, we call it lack or gap. Uh, we have, there's something we're intensely aware, though we don't always talk about it, we're intensely aware of our own shortcomings and how we don't quite feel complete in it. So it creates some kind of antagonism and some kind of tension in us. So against those two things, there's this five-fold movement. I don't think Girard ever says five-fold, but I, I say it because it helps me. But the first is there's, we all have these desires, but I don't, the desires I have are never completely mine because we live in a relational universe. I pick up the desires that you have and you pick up the desires that I have. And so we begin to want some of the same things. And as we want the same things, we begin to imitate each other. And then as we imitate each other, according to Girard, he thinks that always leads to some kind of conflict because we're both going after the same, same kinds of things. And we're going after it to get the thing. But we, what really is driving that is to, we want that thing so that it can uh, resolve the tension that we have uh, psychologically, socially, spiritually of not being put together. So we assume that other person is put together. We want what they have. So we try to go for it and get it in our life and have some sense of completeness, which doesn't work. It, it drives the value of the thing up and it also drives our own agitation up too, because there's no amount of things that we can get or relationships or people or titles or anything. There's no amount of things that we can get to fill that, that gap and that lack, including, I would argue, side note, including God, but that's maybe a whole nother thing. So desire leads to imitation, leads to conflict. And at the, as the conflict grows, what Girard either discovered or uncovered was that the way humans have figured out how to deal with their conflict was instead of going to blows with the other person and bringing our entire community in with it because you know again because it's a relational thing we're talking about it's never just like one person and one person it's always like you're always attached to your family or your community or your church or political party or whatever so as the community gets ready to go to blows over all this mimetic dysfunctional energy we've figured out a way to not have to fight and blow each other up at least sometimes sometimes we actually do blow each other up um, but the way we figured out how to process all that is to basically at the last moment turn and point our fingers at someone else and to scapegoat others and it's a psycho it's a psycho-spiritual offloading of all of our problems onto the back of others and then we see them with our problems so to speak and then it justifies our punishment of them and then we get rid of them we excommunicate them we kill them we uh, lynch them on a tree we throw them in the gas ovens we uh, hang them on a cross and so when i begin to see all of that you know that was at the same time that my at one minute my atonement was changing and, and evolving 
and it it only sped up my the evolution of my thinking about atonement and at one minute because I realized that that was a that was a reasonably intelligent like that's I think it's more than that, but it's at least at the very least a reasonably intelligent way to see what was happening with Jesus in the Hebrew scriptures. And in fact, that's what Girard does when he starts developing this theory. He's not a believer, but by the end, he remembers his Catholic upbringing. He remembers the Hebrew scriptures. He remembers the scapegoat. And he decides that um, that Jesus is has become a scapegoat to be inserted into this scapegoating mechanism in order to do what we were talking about earlier, and that is to undo the, the our obsession with the with the redemptive sacrifice. And he because he's doing this not because God needs him to, but because he's voluntarily entering into it, it messes the whole thing up. Jesus doesn't play by the rules of redemptive sacrifice. He plays by you know relational rules of love. So I'm sorry, that is a lot of stuff in a short amount of time, and there's a whole bunch of stuff I skipped over. But to answer your question, uh, we already kind of started to answer what penal substitutionary atonement theory, and, and then the second part of the question was, what, what are some other approaches? Well, for me, thank God that Girard and mimetic theory became another way to see what was happening here. And it, it gave me an intelligent way to say, oh, yeah, this makes sense, like, Jesus didn't have to be a scapegoat because God needed him to be, but he, of his own volition, he even says somewhere um, in the gospel stories, uh, this is my life, I have the power to lay it down and pick it back up. So I just thought that was a really cool, intriguing, interesting, life-giving, consensual thing that uh, that he enters into, and, and it became a whole new way just all these bells and whistles and lights went off in my head and my heart and um, they're still going off. I, I, I just love that idea. And I, I think there's a whole lot of um, intelligence to mine there and to think through. Yeah, that is a lot. That is a lot of stuff. And I know, sorry. It, it's okay. I love, I love it. I'll be chewing on this for a while. So starting it, I can go back and listen to it again. That's right. That's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that whole idea of, um, you know, the scapegoat that we met, and then um, you know, of course, him saying, uh, "I willingly, I willingly do this. I willingly give my life." Um, he says he willingly came to Earth, and he willingly gave, um, and and that place where it says. Um, you know, that, that he had to die um, in order to, he, you know, he had to be, become a man and then he had to also die in order to experience what we experience. And I, and I think there's a certain cross where it's, it's not a had to in the sense of, um, had to in the sense of in order for God to fully experience what it was to be human, he had to experience the fullness of evil, really. And the only way for him to truly experience evil would be for him to become a man and to be crucified like that or to be, you know, killed in some way um, to experience the fullness of evil because he was innocent, you know, and all of that. Right. The innocent piece is really important. Like I think seven different times in the gospel stories uh, that 
someone says that that Jesus is innocent. So whereas in um, the way the myths play out over the years of humanity, whereas the scapegoat was always guilty, um, what Girard points out is with Jesus, you know, he's innocent. And that's the thing that really undoes it. And, and so, yeah, I think what I hear you saying is God needed to experience this. And by the way, with open and relational thinking, God experiences what we experience. And so there is a way to say that God might not have an, might not know what uh, an experience is like without, you know, us experiencing it because we're so entangled, which I find that to be really, really beautiful. So I think that's true. And, and another thing that I thought of while you were saying that was, so some people then say, well, what was the point then? Why did, can, can we be saved without Jesus dying? And um, I wasn't able to say this 10 years ago or maybe even five or six years ago, but now I definitely 100% think, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we can be in relationship with God. With Jesus didn't need to die for that to happen. However, what Jesus did was reveal the scapegoating mechanism in a mm -hmm. way that no one has ever revealed it. And ever since that moment, the power of the scapegoating mechanism, two things. Number one, the power of the scapegoating mechanism has forever and always been revealed to be, uh, you know, just a, a, just a paltry stand-in for what, what really God really is interested in and loves really interested in, just a sham, you know. And it's become a stumbling block to all the religious systems built upon the myth of redemptive sacrifice. So that needed to happen. And the other thing along with that, I mean, there's probably several things, but another thing is that Jesus then conquers our fear of death. Um, and I, I find that now to be a whole really interesting piece of, you know, just our existential fear of death. Now we, by faith, can say, oh, there's someone who's gone through this thing and been through the worst of it like me and maybe more than me but who potentially comes out the other side and so there's all this victory and hope and resurrection and so yeah it it radically changes americanized christianity's view <laughs> as you can tell um and it, it definitely it changed my life when i started thinking started thinking these ways yeah, and I like what you said about how you just said that, how you said it, um, that we've, we find, we find hope in the re resurrection because we've watched him do this, go mm -hmm. through this suffering and come out the other side. And I think like for me, and, and I've heard other people say this too, that as I've been deconstructing the thing I can't, de the thing I can't deconstruct is this relationship right? Like the thing I can't deconstruct is this very real, uh, maybe more real encounter that I had all these years ago with, with, you know, the spirit, you know, and with God and, and how that encounter uh, and that relation me so much, like, I can't undo that. Like I can look at, I can look at penal substitution and I can tear that apart. Right. And I can look at some other things and I can tear that. But when, it, but when it comes down to this relationship that God wants to have with us, that thing can't like, it just still is there. It's like, I can't, yeah. I can't explain it and I can't deny it. Like it's just there, you know? 
Yeah, and and I I know what you're saying, and I've experienced some of that same stuff, and it's it's funny when you then chat with some of your former friends who are still hell bent on myth of redemptive sacrifice kind of theology or whatever the case might be, scapegoating mechanisms, which you know our most of our religious systems are built upon. You can tell it's just impossible for them to understand what you're saying because so much of their relationship with God has been mediated by you know the church's ideas and these dogmatic views um so it, it makes it, it makes it tricky having conversations with them because you're like no man i really like i love god and i actually have a deeper um it's different it's different because it's not built on certainty which there's a measure of vulnerability and risk now that i did, didn't have to have as much when i was younger uh, frankly, by the way, I kind of miss that. I, there are some days when I'm like, I'd just as soon be ignorant and have had the, you know, the certainty, but I can't because life's just been, there's just been too many problems. So it's different, but, um, but the depth of commitment and conviction that I have about love is stronger than it ever has been. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, the the idea of I think those early couple of years because um, I was still in the Catholic Church when I came to faith, and mm -hmm. like I think about just prayer meetings and everything was so fresh and I'm learning everything mm -hmm. new, and there was a sense of certainty and and that, um, and now I don't have that certainty in the same way but i have a much more authentic relationship with god than i did back then like there was still a part of me that was like i'm only gonna show I'm, like i mean it's kind of ridiculous to think about like if he knows everything right but i'm like yeah. i'm only gonna show god this part of me like he doesn't know whereas yeah. now i'm like now i can actually be authentic with god and what i'm thinking what i'm feeling and say all the words that i want to say and yeah. uh it's freedom yeah it's it's much more free freeing yeah that's funny what you were saying that I, I started to take a big breath i was like oh yeah i want that that's the kind of oxygen i want to and i think the spirit of god is that's that you know and, and that's what the scripture says where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom so wherever there's freedom there's a spirit of the lord um and it's just quite interesting how the religious systems uh it's that's they they don't operate in that way and so once you lean into freedom it, it completely it puts their whole way of living in jeopardy and the system just can't handle it so yeah it's challenging it is it is okay i do want to get into this now that we've only been chatting for like 45 <laughs> minutes but um needs to get this book, especially the reconstructing part. And you've got these, these three main points that you yeah. talk through the greater than text. Like for me, that's been really important because I've been like, I've been struggling to read scripture. Like mm -hmm. can't for the last six months or so, mm -hmm. um, unless I was writing a sermon, that was when I sat down. And when I did sit down to write it, I had to just, I'm just going to look at the scripture and I had to really force myself to just 
logically and look at the scripture and not allow my heart to get involved because I found it triggering in so many ways. Like, yeah. because I, I, like I would read a pass, you know, now I've read this, I've read the Bible through how many times, right? Like I know yeah. these passages. And so I go to preach a passage and I read it and I'm like, I know what so-and-so would preach about this. I, and it's like, and I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with this and I don't agree with it. And so it became easier to put it on the shelf than to read it or to which of course with my catholic background i mean i know there are a lot of other spiritual disciplines other than just right. reading scripture yeah. but i've also you know <laughs> i'm also uh very much entrenched in which is like the greatest sin that you could commit as a pastor is to not read your Bible every day, right? Like <laughs> there are a lot of other things you could do, but if you don't read your Bible every day, man, yeah. you could probably lose your, your uh, credentials for that. Yeah. So will you just talk a little bit about that? And maybe I, I suspect I'm not the only person, right? Help people with yeah. that and, and talk a little bit about how did the idea of people over text help you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um... By the way, you've, you've cut out a couple of different times, and I don't know if that is coming through on the podcast, but you cut out right when you said people are greater than the text. Oh, people so are greater than the text. I'll just reiterate, okay. um, in case it didn't come through, that, yeah, so the book's called The Reconstructionist, and the subtitle is People are Greater Than the Text, Mercy is Greater Than Sacrifice, Love is Greater Than Fear. And what I realized um, at some point, this would have been about three or four years ago, uh, I realized that every question that i had and it did not matter what the topic was sexuality ecclesiology you know women leadership in the church uh atonement you know it, it just on and on that i was i was running all of them through these one of these three filters sometimes all three but but certainly at least one and as they went through that filter if they landed in a particular spot, I was I was wanting to keep that. I felt like that was sustainable and that was life-giving. And if they landed in a different spot, I was done. I didn't need that stuff anymore. And so, um, you know, if it was, if I was running it through that filter and it was landing in love rather than fear, good. If it had something to do with fear, didn't want it. If it came through and it was landing on sacrifice and emphasizing my need, you know, or God's need for sacrifice, didn't want it. I was I was into mercy. And then your point of the first point, which is uh, when it came to the Bible, reading these things and trying to figure out how to work through the difficulty and complexity of life, um, I just decided that I, I wanted to be someone who elevated people over these static words on a page, which is what the Bible is at one level. And I know some people are scandalized if someone says that, but on one level, they are. They're words that were written thousands of years ago that have been through multiple changes and in interpretations and paraphrases. And even if they, <laughs> even if we all read and spoke original Hebrew or Aramaic or, or Greek, um, it, it would still would have changed because everything's in flux. Words change, contexts change. So it's a it's a it's a pretty challenging thing. And then, you know, I kept interacting with Jesus and, you know, Jesus has a respect for the text, no doubt about that, but he never places the text over people. 
Um, in fact, he does just the opposite and he demonstrates a way forward and even says at times to the religious leaders who just are so worked up over this. Um, Jesus says saying things like, look, you guys have been studying the scriptures your whole life and yet you don't understand. They're talking about me. And I think he means, yeah, I don't know for sure, but I think that I think he means they're talking about me specifically, but they're also talking at the same time. I think it's true to say that these verses are talking about human relationships and that we all have divinity in us. And so it works that way too. So the, the point is stuff has to be worked out in relationship and you can't just say, for example, gay people are bad, you know, because it says so in the Bible. One reason you can't say that is because it also says that, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbor. So what do you even do if your neighbor is gay? You can't say they're bad and love them at the same time. Uh, you can't stone them to actually, because that's what Leviticus says. You're supposed to stone them. So you can't stone them and love them at the same time. So it becomes untenable. You have to have a hermeneutic, which is a big word for how we read and interpret the text. You have to have a, a lens would be a, a synonym for hermeneutic through which you read this. Everyone has a lens. Um, a lot of us just don't admit it. But uh, what most the lens for most of American Christianity is we've already kind of been saying it is the myth of redemptive sacrifice. It's capitalism. It's consumerism. It's male dominated, hierarchical, top down, controlling capital O omnipotence. That becomes the lens through which we read everything. Um, all of them are highly problematic. And I just intentionally decided, and I'm not the first, obviously, and I had a lot of help. Um, I just intentionally decided, you know what, I'm going to choose my lens. The lens doesn't, I, this, it, this is a, it's about consent. I get to choose. And so I thought this is a much healthier way to live, to put people over the text, because I just kept running into problems when I was doing it the other way around. Yeah, uh, we we are really hung up on uh, omnipotence. Right? Like, why don't we get hung up on on omniscience? Like, right? Like, there are yeah, other exactly. there are other options for us to get hung up on, but or om omnipresence. I think yeah. that is the thing. Really, right? we could get hung up on the witness <laughs> of God versus this all controlling, powerful deity that lives outside of space and time that periodically arrives in on the scene to fix things, which by the way, you're wondering, well, why don't you just stay here and fix it entirely? You know, if that's who you can be. So, right, we get hung up on certain things and I just decided, here are the things I'm gonna get hung up on. Mercy, love, and people. Oh, well, those are pretty good things to get hung up on. <laughs> well, that's what I thought too. And I thought the more you look at it, uh, that's what Jesus was doing. And so it matched matches up with him and still i've yet to come across a question that i can't run through that little grid and come out the other side and have a sense of okay i think i think that this is probably going in the the healthiest direction possible yeah uh i do have a lot of clergy that listen and but i also have lay people who listen as well mm -hmm. um so for people who are They've, they've been deconstructing. Now they're trying to kind of put their worlds back together. Um, maybe just some advice for steps. How can they start putting, um, I don't know, putting shape to their faith, I guess, again, in a sense. 
Yeah, it's a really important question. And I don't think enough of us can be asking that and wrestling with it because, you know, deconstruction is highly flammable and it's easy just to burn things down. It's a lot harder to build things back up. So I think for every one thing that you uproot, you should try to plant a couple of things. You know, for every one thing you tear down, you should try to build a couple of things. Even as I say that, though, I'm a bit hesitant because of a couple of re couple of things. Number one, if you're tearing down because you have personally been abused, manipulated, hurt, um, physically, verbally, sexually, emotionally, you have every freaking right to tear it down, and you should tear it down. No, you know, no one should tell you, and no one can tell you. You have to build anything back up. You may never build back something again that resembles anything remotely like the christian faith that you once had and that is not only okay that probably speaks to your courage and strength um, and it speaks to what i think love is inviting you to do so i hope it doesn't sound like i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth um, i think what i'm trying to do is live in the tension of Yes, A, you should be really careful about tearing down because it's really easy to do so. Clearly, our entire culture is doing it all the time. It's a scapegoating culture. We're constantly offloading our problems onto others and tearing and um, tearing them down. And, and if we don't figure out how to manage that, it's going to blow all of us up. And at the same time, I'm saying, if you've been hurt, you have every right to um, to be mad and to be upset and to take your time and there's no rush and to yeah to rebuild however you you need to rebuild. So that's one thing I would say, um, or actually those two things. I think give yourself a lot of grace and patience. allow yourself to breathe. You know, for me, a lot of it was really simple. I remember when I was younger and people would come into my office and we do counseling and inevitably I would, you know, bring up something like you need to read the Bible more, you know, you need to pray more. Over the years, it just it moved away from that to like, I would pretty much start with like, tell me about your sleep life. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you drinking water? Are you, are you taking walks? I, I just, that really cracks me up. Like it went from this overly spiritual thing to this very practical, but there's so much grace in the simplicity of those things. And I know for me personally, for example, hiking, I actually physically might not even be here if it wasn't for hiking, if it wasn't for the chance to get out into the wilderness and to be by myself for hours on end, trying to figure out where God was and where I was and who he or she was and who I was. Super important and just sleep, my sleeping, I, I pay a lot more attention to that now um, in eating and all those kinds of things. And, and I, I don't think I'm, um, I don't think I obsess about it though. Everyone's different. So some people might think that I do, but. It, I'm just aware of it. I think those very simple things are really important. 
as you go through whatever this change is you're going through to try to take care of yourself. I, I kind of really think it's wrapped up in that, trying to take care of yourself. I don't know, how does that, how does that sound? I like it. I think that's good. I think that's good, yeah. Yeah, I do too. I, I think also this might open the door to go a whole another thing. And sometimes the, you know, deconstruction is a really, really popular word right now. The essence of deconstruction, the idea comes from um, another French thinker by the name of Jacques Derrida. He, he coined the term. It's incredibly powerful term. Um, most Americanized Christians, Christian folks are not using it in the way that he did. And so I'll cut, I'll try to cut through a lot of backstory we could talk about and just say that I don't really ever think we're in a, in a Derridian Jacques, Jacques Derrida kind of a way. I don't think we're really ever through the deconstruction. Things are constantly being deconstructed in part because justice is constantly speaking in to these things and love and and truth and goodness and mercy and so it's this kind of turbulent really beautiful constant movement so i think the last thing we all would want to do in that context the last thing we would all want to do is like oh okay we've gotten rid of the way we did christianity in the 80s 90s early 2000s now we're this is the new way um and now we've sat you know, now we, with our certainty and our certitude, we go in this new direction. Um, it is a new direction, but I think we should be holding to all, all onto all these things like loosely and allowing ourselves to constantly be in the flow of evolution and deconstruction is happening in real time. So uh, when I say, pe hear people say, well, I've been through deconstruction, now what? I always wind up trying to back that whole thing up and be like, well, I kind of don't feel like maybe that's the healthiest way to approach it because it's it's constantly in flux. So I think we should get better at being in the process of change because everything is changing. So yeah, something something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, we we shouldn't be the. I remember when I was doing my undergrad and we took this class and and it was on um, adult life transitions. And she was saying that, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, um, that we, you know, there was, we, you know, childhood transitions, life transitions, and then you got to be about 25. And then really from the age of 25 on, you didn't have another life transition. Maybe, Just maybe. Frozen. Yeah, 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 frozen. Maybe a midlife, you know, transition crisis, right. whatever. Um, and, but she was saying, you know, now because of technology and everything, she's like, we, we are transitioning about every, and, and so there's a certain amount where we should look at it back at our faith. And if we're the same, go, there might be a problem, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything is changing all the time. So that is the nature of reality. And I, I don't think that that scares God. I think God is infused in the middle of all of that. So to the degree that we can lean into that, I think we'll have health in our life 
and we all know our systems desperately need that. And so, uh, so yeah, lean into that. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm going to have to have you come back and we'll talk about what else God can't do. Right, exactly. All the other things God cannot do. Yeah. Because God loves us. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we'll see each other on TikTok or something. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. <laughs>